what's after this life? Over 150 ministries have registered to take part in this campaign this year. And I love and I honor the Lord for the unity that he has created in this city. We are a part of something so, so big, much bigger than ourselves and our church this morning. Jesus is going to get his reward. Jesus is going to get his bride ready in this city and in our region. And this is a campaign that's going to help him do that. Before I jump in, I just want to point y'all back to three messages that were given here earlier this year at this church on this topic. These three are great, broad touch points on this most important question that literally all of humanity has been asking themselves for all of time. I encourage you to check out these messages from February 16th, February 23rd, both those given by my dad, Papa G, Pastor Glenn, and April 19th from our own Rachel Dorth. Yes, go back and get some touch points on those. What happens after we die? Again, there's no more important question for humanity. This question will never not be relevant to the human heart and the condition and experience of every person that you see from this day on. This question is the great equalizer. Death in itself is the great equalizer of all of humanity. Think about it. Steve Jobs, the guy who created most of the phones that are in your hands and this computer right here, He's just as much dead as those forgotten slaves in the 1800s in our country who were buried in unmarked graves. Just as much dead. At least his physical body. The Lord is so insistent and hedges us in with so many confrontations of this reality, even daily, if we are watching and listening. The remarkable thing about this question, though, of what happens after we die is that we are not left totally in the dark on this issue. The Bible has so, so much to say about heaven and about hell and about the age to come. You can't go far in the Bible without being smacked in the face, as it were, with the reality of eternity, the reality of life and death, and the fact that what we do in this body, in this life, has implications for billions and billions and billions of years, and more, and more. You see where I'm going. You can't quantify eternity. Let it hurt you when you think about eternity. Let it hurt your mind when you try to think about it. Eternity is real. Forever is real. The Bible is so clear on this issue. But also, (laughs) real modern-day people like myself have had real experiences with the afterlife in the spiritual realm. Experiences that back up the biblical record on this reality. And it's a much more common human experience than one would probably think at the first. In our modern age of medicine, one in 25 people have been pronounced clinically dead and yet came back to life. One in 25 people. (laughs) It's clearly a global phenomenon with an increasing volume of scientific research validating the existence of life after this life. And 23% of all near-death experiences are of a hellish or bad nature. And there's good reason to believe that this percentage is probably much higher in actuality because the human tendency 
is to be much less vocal about a horrific negative experience out of the fear and shame that might be associated with it. So there are most likely many, many, many unrecorded and unspoken hidden experiences of what I and so many others have tasted and seen throughout the thousands of years that humans have existed. And today, I will be sharing my own experience, the radical glimpse of what was after this life for me if I were to continue on the path of actively rejecting God and his plan to save my soul through his son, Jesus. Now, why have I not kept silent about this experience? Well, it's so simple. (laughs) I've tasted and I've seen of the glories of the mercy and the tangible love and the tangible kindness and the goodness of Jesus. And I could confidently say that I know my heaven better than I know my hell. I know my heaven better than I know my hell. And that gives me confidence to share what I'm about to share. I can't keep silent (laughs) about this beautiful God who rescued me, this Jesus who snatched me from the pit like a brand plucked from the fire and encountered me with so many defining only God moments during these darkest hours of my soul. I can't keep quiet about this God who has become my everything, the God who removed the sting of death and catapulted me into a daily growing experience of heaven on earth with him. Heaven on earth being the place of face-to-face encounter with Jesus and his presence through the Bible, through prayer, through worship, and through fellowship with other believers. His light and his might truly shines the brightest on our darkest days. His light and his might truly shines the brightest amidst the backdrop of our darkest days. And his light and his might shine the brightest amidst the backdrop of this horrific terror and pain and utter hopelessness and that glimpse of hell that he showed me and allowed me to fall into. I can't wait to tell you about it. But before I do, I want to answer one common objection to most people's thinking about the existence and the reality of hell. Why is hell a real place? For me, it's super simple. God gives each one of us what we want. God gives each one of us what we want. Humans have free will, and God honors that will. He honors our choice. Simply put, for many years before this experience, I wanted life without a holy God. I was shown what life was like without God in the many years leading up to this experience with fear, striving, addiction, broken relationships, and just general pain and and yuck from about my junior year in high school to this moment in 2012. And then ultimately, I was shown what life is like without God by this hellish experience that I'm about to share. He gave me what I desired back then, but ever since his radical act of mercy we're about to see and giving me a second chance. And really ever since he filled me with his divine love about seven months later in July of 2013, ever since those experiences, I have increasingly desired God. I have wanted God. So what has God given me? God. God has given me God. He's given me himself. So let's dive into the defining moment (laughs) and reason why I'm still here today of the taste and the glimpse of hell that the Lord showed me. 
Let's start with some context. December 2012. I'm 23 years of age at this point. Let me just tell you, he was my Psalm 23 shepherd in my 23rd year, <laughs> leading me through the valley of the shadow of death to the other side, the other side of that shadow, which has proved to be the promised land of his presence daily. Woo! He really is the Psalm 23 shepherd, by the way. That's legit, all those words. It was, where, where did this experience happen? It was about 1.4 miles away, right at this hill, Baylor Scott and White Hospital. We have a, a doctor who's, who works at that hospital with us today. It's a real place. I really was there. And I was detoxing and withdrawing from two years of active alcohol addiction. That's what put me in the hospital. So I had stopped on Friday, December 14th, and the experience happened either late on December 15th or early on December 16th, somewhere in the middle of the night in 2012. And leading up to this moment, I was averaging, just to give you a scope of the addiction, I was averaging the equivalent of 20 to 30 drinks of alcohol a day just to stop shaking, just to stop the physical withdrawals. So again, December 15th, Saturday night late or early Sunday morning, all I know is it was super dark and it was the second night that I was there in the hospital. My spiritual condition at this point, complete atheist. I didn't want God, I didn't believe he was real. I saw too much negativity, and I was just full of pride. <laughs> I had a lot of things going for me that led up to that addiction, and I was so full of myself, so full of pride that the Lord was faithful, that he humbles the proud. He knocks down the proud. So I was a complete atheist, completely full of myself, so broken, but <laughs> that wasn't the only part of my spiritual condition. I had spiritual warriors around me like Janice Anderson. <laughs> I had people praying for me. We'll get to that at the end. Again, these first really two days, two, three, four days where my body was coming off of the alcohol were all very hazy. Time didn't really make sense. Don't really remember much, but these details and these experiences I'm about to share were very, very clear to me. They were so real and they were kind of burned into my memory to such an extent that I can recount them clearly and put myself right back in these moments that I'm about to share. And I can't even tell you what I had for breakfast, you know, three days ago but I could tell you what happened and when I was in crazy coming off addiction in these moments. That's how clear they were. These experiences were of a heightened reality is what I can explain them as to normal life here on the earth. Let's just say everything was magnified behind the veil of this life. So again, middle of the night, I start to feel my heart racing faster than it ever has before. It's like the worst panic attack I'd ever had times whatever magnitude. You could put a number on it. Beating faster than any sprints or athletic endeavor. I was an athletic guy growing up. Way faster than that. And so the reality is hitting me. Wow, this, I feel like my heart is giving its kind of like last hurrah. Like this, is the, this isn't good. This is, this is not normal. Even for the panic attacks I had before. Probably like over 200 beats a minute is what I could put a number on it. But the next moment, the next thing I remember is my heart actually started slowing. 
to where it was like the slowest I've ever felt it beat before. It's like time slowed down, slow motion. And it was like a, a beat of my heart was happening like every 10 seconds. So it went from the fastest it's ever beat before, be like, oh, this ain't good. This might be the end, to the slowest it's ever <laughs> beat. And I was like, wow, my heart is, it's really, it's given up. It's had enough of years and years of pumping a, a depressant into it, which is alcohol. And then when you take that away, it's gone through so, so much haywire. My central nervous system is in haywire. And my heart's like, I can't keep up. I'm done. So this reality sinks into my consciousness super clear that I'm about to die. This is the end. So I'm waiting for the next beat of my heart, but it doesn't come. And all of a sudden, my vision goes black. This is the first level. I'm going to take you through five levels of what I experienced. My vision goes black, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, my heart's not beating anymore. I can't see, but why am I still conscious? I thought, when you die, you die. Nothing happens after that. Remember, I'm an atheist. <laughs> but as soon as my vision went black, I love this part. This is so redemptive. The reality of heaven Hell, God, the Bible became instantly true in that moment. All the years that I had denied it, in a moment when my vision went black, it was true, 100% true. Everything I heard growing up in Sunday school, everything we just sang about, every verse was absolutely true. There was no questioning. There was no doubt about the reality of God and the devil and everywhere in between in this moment. All the seeds, let this encourage you parents and people who teach others about God, all the seeds of the word of God from growing up in the church, they were dormant, but they were real. All of them became active in that one moment of time when my vision went black. You see, I was blind in this moment with my vision, but was I blind? <laughs> no, I could actually spiritually see for probably the first time in my life when my vision went black. But even though this stuff we believe became all true in that moment, I just knew there was no hope for me still with God. My heart was condemning me here, and I just knew that I had blown it with this life, the way I'd lived, and I knew I was going down. And really, based on the way I'd actively rejected Jesus and his followers. Well, I didn't stay in this, this level of blackness long all of a sudden, the next thing I remember, my vision goes from black to boom, I'm in another room. Now in my physical body, just as real as I am standing here today and moving about, but even more real. Like I said, it was heightened reality. So I go from the blackness to level two, which was like, I describe it as like a dingy, yellow, yellowish panic room. The room was dingy, old, broken down, that it kind of like turned into pardon the analogy, but like a crack house. There were yellow lights. It was abandoned, yet there were people in there. It was desolate, yet there were people. There were other real people in this room who were desperately searching for something to take or inject or drink to give themselves relief from the pain and fear and general panic that the atmosphere of this room contained. The panic in that room was, was severe. And I was right there with them, in my body, scrambling, looking in drawers, looking everywhere, trying to find something to ease the torment. 
These seemed to be real people, like I said. And they were all frantically searching for the thing on earth that they were addicted to or that gave them a relief, but they all came up empty. There was no relief in that second level that I experienced. But it didn't stay there. <laughs> I went from a dingy, broken, desperate, yellowish panic room to boom, third level, another room. And this third level, I'm now sitting in a dark, quiet room. It was actually felt like a little bit of a, a breather from what I had just experienced. I'm sitting down, and sitting in front of me on this third level was a seemingly serene, large grandmother figure, just sitting, staring at me. This is crazy. Half of her face, the left side of her face, was in the light. The other side was in the dark. And this left side of her face that was in the light, there was like the most beautiful, transcendent light coming out of this side of her face. It was pure, and it was good. It was probably the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And it was just pure light is what it seemed. But she turned to reveal the other side of her face. And it was actually the exact opposite. I saw who she really was. It was the most dark, most grotesque, most demonic, flesh-eaten, evil, horror movie, times whatever, face. And think how much fear that produced in me when I realized who she really was. I realized at this point that she's not a good, serene, loving, protecting grandma, like my two grandmas <laughs> are, but rather an indescribably evil entity that was bent on destroying me completely, wow. just taking me apart. That was the knowing that I had. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul says this. He says, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades, it's like having a mask on, as an angel of light. <laughs> That's in the Bible. <laughs> and I saw it. This two-faced grandma, Satan himself, I don't know if it was Satan, probably not, because there was more levels b beneath, but it was one of his workers. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He looks good at first, but then when you really get to know him, it ain't good. It's death, it's fear, it's brokenness, and there's so many things in this life that look so good on the outside. They're so beautiful, and then you actually get to know them. Not the people, but the things. Woo! The end of that is not good. It's this. So at this point, when I realized who she was, that she was evil, I started to notice a number of animals that were manifesting in her and on her. Animals and beasts that she had control of. Animals and beasts that had the intention of destroying me. The ones I remember are these. The first ones were these fluorescent birds that were hopping about her. And the idea was they were waiting, waiting, waiting to come and do whatever horror movie that the movie Birds <laughs> showed. If y'all remember that from probably the 60s, 70s. They were fluorescent, beautiful light, yet they were not beautiful intent with their intentions. The two other animals that I remember was a wolf and a bear coming out of her bosom towards me, again with the intent to kill me or eat me or destroy me. But it wasn't just the demonic animals that she had control over. The scariest part of this third level was actually some entities that I never saw with my eyes, but I only heard with my ears. 
Remember, I was in this dark room. It's just her with the animals all about her. But there was another room. There was another door that was cracked to the right of her. And there was what seemed to be a legion of demonic children, is what their voices sounded like, who were crying out with shrilling, evil voices. These demonic children were crying out, asking if they could come in and torment me, destroy me, eat me, defile me, do whatever they could to me. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 34 and 35. He says, and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers or the tormentors until he should pay all that was due to him. And this is what I was due. I was due all this and more. I was due all the things that were coming at me. Jesus says, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is an invitation. If you got unforgiveness in your heart, take care of that today. You don't want what's on the other side of that door. It seemed as though I was about to be delivered to these tortures or tormentors every single moment. But this demonic, two-faced grandmother figure, she kept holding the children back in the other room from barging in to annihilate me. I remember what she kept saying to them. They kept asking her. She said, not yet, not yet, not yet. And looking back and praying through this, this experience this week with fresh eyes, I really see that she actually couldn't touch me. There was some sort of shield or restraining force that was around me that kept her, the demonic horde of tortures in the other room, and those fluorescent animal figures from coming out of her and having access to me and my body and my soul. And this led me to look up and count how many times the Bible describes God as our shield. I counted 24 times in the Bible that it's describing God as our shield, the shield to his people. And my goodness, he was my shield in this experience. So clearly there was another unseen spiritual legion who were on my side. A legion of angelic armies, I believe, who were sent in response to the prayer warriors like Janice and my family and this church family and the churches in this city who were also crying to God's mercy and forgiveness for me well before and also during this dark season of my life. I heard a story from a, a young woman from a different church, like probably 25, 30 minutes away, who they heard about what was going on and she just couldn't stop praying for me. She hadn't met me yet. She didn't know why she kept praying for me during this time. She came here to River in the Hills probably years later and heard a snippet of my testimony and put it together. That was that guy that God would not stop letting me pray for. I mean, people who didn't even know me. So clearly, there was, he was answering those prayers and putting the angelic shield around me. <laughs> even in hell. Wow. Think about it, what our prayers could do. So I went from this old grandmother figure level to a fourth level, which actually was a good level. This was a reprieve from the evil. David says in Psalm 139, even if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there with me. <laughs> my bed was in hell, and somehow he was there with me through the prayers. So this fourth level, get this, guys. <laughs> Three African-American like grandmothers were singing gospel music over me. Satan had an evil grandmother who wanted to destroy me in level three. 
But God and heaven's armies had a divine, divine response in level four. I, I can't wait to go back and look at that moment, how that went in heaven and with people on the earth. <laughs> I believe someone agreed for something. Maybe it was three African-American ladies in this city. They don't know that God showed them my face and they were praying, but they were there. This was a divine response. <laughs> this fourth level was set in like a 1970s, again, yellowish hospital room, but it wasn't torment. This was a good, like, warm feeling for the 1970s. I'm just saying what I saw, guys. Three African-American ladies were by my bedside singing the most beautiful, hope-filled gospel music over me. And they kept telling me I was going to be all right. You're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Just wait. Just see you're going to make it. They were consoling me and comforting me and just assuring me I was going to make it through. <laughs> I firmly believe these were angels who penetrated this dark spiritual realm and came to my aid and gave me the chance to turn and receive the truth and the comfort of heaven in that moment. But I was still terrified and still hopeless in this fourth level. And I was still convinced that I was doomed to darkness and felt so not worthy of acceptance into heaven. So I rejected the reprieve somehow. My heart was still condemning me. So this wildly deceptive, demonic thought and strategy came into my mind in this fourth level to start cursing God and cursing Jesus with every curse word that I knew. Because I thought it would give me some place of authority or further relief or maybe just a drink of water down below. I thought if I agree with what the ruler of this realm agrees with, which is Satan, if I agree with him, then maybe he will view me as one of his boys and set me up with something good down below. That's crazy, right? It's a good idea about agreement and the power of that, but it's in the wrong way. I knew Satan hated and cursed God and Jesus. So I needed to at least act like I hated God and Jesus in this moment, I thought. So as soon as I started cursing God and Jesus, I started to descend and fall rapidly from this fourth level of reprieve. And with each curse word, guys, this is such an analogy for our lives of each step away that we make from Jesus or each little thing we do, each curse word, the pain and the terror only increased in intensity and horror. And I only descended faster and faster with each curse word. So each disobedient, it, it's like that. And we see it with consequences in life. It's super clear. And this led me to the last level I remember. Level five. <laughs> At this point, I stopped cursing God, realizing this was foolishness and that there was nothing good waiting for me down there on this other side of my cursing. The pain was only increasing, and so I knew that it was not going to work. So in a sense, in this level, I came to the end of myself, truly. And I came to my senses, like Nebuchadnezzar and the prodigal son did. You can look up Daniel 4, 34 and Luke 15, 17 for even that phrase of coming to yourself or coming to the end of yourself. And as soon as I stopped cursing God, I stopped my downward plunge and ended up on this fifth and final level. This was a level where I was suspended like laying on my back, but there was nothing underneath me. Suspended in midair, all alone, hanging in nothingness in this great, deep darkness and void. The only other things in this deep, dark void were what I, what I can describe as like faint, orangish glows, faint, orangish glows of like old-style wood furnaces 
orangish glows that were sprinkling the horizon in the far distance. So the realization sinks into me in a deep way in this fifth level that I'm literally going to be here forever. I've tried everything. There's nothing left for me to do. There's nowhere for me to go. I'm literally going to be stuck in this deep, dark void, utterly alone, forever. But then, (laughs) as I have completely surrendered all hope and all prospect of finding a way out, when there's no light at the end of the tunnel, utter rock bottom, a simple, single word comes into my mind and into my heart. It was the word yes. Y-E-S. All I know to do at this point is to yell this word with everything that I have left in me, which is not much. Mind you, I don't even know what or who I'm saying this yes to. But I yell this yes at the top of my lungs into the deep darkness above me. And boom, instantly back. Back where? On that hospital bed. Back to earth, back to this life, back to this realm. Up at Baylor Scott and White Hospital. But this time, guys, (laughs) instead of the sheer terror and pain and confusion that I entered into this hellish experience in, This time, there is an overwhelming, tangible peace, shalom peace that filled the room that I pray you even experience right now. The kind of peace that I felt at Grandma's house (laughs) on Christmas morning when I'm five years old. That's how I describe it. And I hadn't felt it in so long. That kind of sense where nothing is missing, nothing is broken, Just like the African-American grandmother figure said, everything's okay. Everything's going to be all right. But even that feeling at at grandma's house magnified, again, way, many, many, many times more, more than I've ever felt it. So I'm getting my bearings in the room, kind of swimming almost. I'm still laying on the bed, but like, in a sense, swimming in this cloud of peace. (laughs) And then I see, get this, guys, I haven't shared this just with a few, the first thing I saw before I'm going to share with most of you probably remember, I see an old-time movie reel, like Life Review, like an old-time, like, again, 1970s, 80s, little, like, screens in front of me. And what did the Lord show me? <laughs> they were favorite moments from my childhood with my dad. We were playing sports and just having a good time, just playing games, nothing spiritual, <laughs> just playing, playing together. I love guys. The Lord could have shown me anything first, but the first thing the Lord showed me after coming back was great moments with my dad. I believe he was showing me and pointing me to the ultimate destination of every believer being not Jesus, but the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's our destination. That's the end of the road is the Father's embrace. (laughs) That's what we're all headed towards. And I just know that the Father will have incredible moments to share with each one of us forever. Mind you, I'm still getting my bearings in the room, still wondering where (laughs) this peace was coming from. 
or who or what I had said yes to. I didn't put it together about the destination being the father at that point. And then I look up to the right of me, and I see written on the wall, like with the color of lightning as I describe it, white hot, piercing out of the wall, was the scripture address, John 3.16. (laughs) Yes, for God so loved the world, and that included me, (laughs) that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I realize, my goodness, it was Jesus who saved me. It was Jesus who I said yes to without even knowing. And in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 5, and Rachel, y'all can play a little bit. I'll start wrapping up. In Daniel chapter 5, during a wicked party, God's finger came down and literally wrote judgment on the wall against the evil king Belshazzar of Babylon. And God's same hand came down and wrote the same judgment that I deserved. But instead of writing on the wall of my life and my life's report card on that hospital wall that night in 2012, he decided to write the judgment that I deserved on the wall of Jesus' body on the cross in 33 AD Jerusalem. That's what he wrote my judgment on. And that same father used his son's blood to completely flip the script and flip what was written on the wall for me. And he wrote the mercy, the mercy of Jesus in John 3.16, the mercy of the only begotten son that I would not perish or die or be destroyed, but that I would experience everlasting life not just in the age to come, but right here and right now in this life. Ever since that experience, I wondered why did God save me? Why did he put that yes in my heart when I least deserved it? And then give me the second chance to say yes to him daily with the rest of my life on the earth. Why? I wondered often, was it the little yes that I had when I was five years old? Or was it the faithful, relentless prayers (laughs) of my family and church family throughout the years of my rebellion? I didn't really know this answer with certainty until a moment at Austin Stone Church in 2015 where I was sharing my story in a little small group setting. And I get to the point in the story where I didn't know why God gave me a second chance. Why did he put this yes in my heart? I said, was it my little yes when I was little or was it the prayers? All of a sudden, what I believed to be an angel came up and he said, he confidently, I don't even know how much of the story he heard, but he came up and he confidently told me, he says, it was the prayers. And then he goes on to tell me, guys, he goes on to tell me one of the most wild stories I've ever heard, like a first person experience of this story is how he's telling it. He said, there were two people who had a suicide pact to jump off of Mount Benel in in Austin. If you've ever been to Mount Benel, it's like a 300-foot fall. Two people had a suicide pact, which means they were going to do it together. Both of them jumped. One of them completely dead, his 300-foot fall. The other walked away without a scratch on him. He said the reason why the one walked away without a scratch is he had a mother or a grandmother, I can't remember which one, who never stopped praying for him. 
And then he just walked away. Never seen him again. He just walked away. And the, the little like 19 year old or 19, 20 year olds in the group just started breaking down crying. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> but that, that messenger, if it was a human or whatever it was, he answered the question for me definitively. That it was the prayers of my family and my church family that gave me that second chance, that put the yes in my heart, and gave me the ability to say yes every day with my life. So think about that for you guys. What's the implication for those of you who already know Jesus in this room and have people in your life who don't know him yet? Just wanna share two quick prayers that my dad had just to encourage you. You can use these prayers as like bullets or swords in your armor for the people in your life who don't know Jesus yet. My dad had two cornerstone prayers that the Holy Spirit gave him to keep praying during the years and these moments of crisis in my life. These prayers were weapons, <laughs> and he never stopped yielding them, even when he was weak, until my soul was one, and until I found freedom. The first one was, God, Use the least severe means possible to get the greatest amount of heart response from Kyle. Use the least severe means possible to get the greatest amount of heart response from my son. Look at what the, severe, the least severe means were for me. That shows you the condition of my heart, how severe that was. That shows you how jacked up I was, that the Lord had to take me to that level to get the greatest amount of heart response. But he answered the prayer because I'm still here. Second one. Strike Kyle's heart. That sounds a little intense to start off. Strike Kyle's heart with your love and your mercy so that you don't strike him with your judgment. <laughs> Pray that for people in your life who don't know him yet. Strike him with your love and your mercy so that you don't strike him with your judgment. For my mom, she had a cornerstone stone um, that she just believed what happened for me and happened for our family. And it's, the line of it is, I'm gonna sing it real quick because I love singing it. <laughs> He's gonna turn it all around. Just wait and see. He's gonna make everything beautiful just in time. He's gonna turn it all around. Just wait and see. He's gonna make everything beautiful just in time. She held on to that. So these prayers from my parents led to that moment of deliverance. Seven months later, being encountered and filled with the love of God changed everything for me. And I firmly believe it. Take this for you. Run to the bank with this. If we don't let go of our loved ones before the throne of God, he won't let go of them. If we don't let go of our loved ones before the throne of God, he won't let go of them. He's just that tied to his covenant of mercy with his people and his word. It's his will to save all people. And if we hold on and agree for anyone in our lives and we keep on agreeing, we keep on asking, we keep on seeking, we keep on knocking. If we simply believe he will answer us and he will save our loved ones, even if it's in their last moment. We just can't give up. We can't give in. We can't stop holding on.
deep breath. So again, hell is a real place where real people really go for their final destination. But through our relentless appeals to God's mercy for people on that path, hell doesn't have to be the end of their stories. <laughs> so three action steps for us this, this morning. First one, if you're in this room and you're not sure if you've said yes to Jesus from a real place or you've made that commitment, I want to invite you into that yes. I want everyone to bow your head. This is between you and the Lord. This is a decision between you and the Lord. No one was in that experience with me, in that, in that hospital, in that experience of hell, except the Lord's yes in my heart. And I just yelled yes, and he saved me. So I want to invite you into that yes if you're not sure. You can go ahead and just slip up your hand or, or make eye contact with me if you want to make that choice today. Just give you a few moments just to ask that question in your own heart. Do I need to say yes today after what I just heard? You just slip up your hand. Make sure I see it. in the family. Well, this one's for you. The second action step's for you. Commit to not giving up on crying out for God's mercy for lost family members. Commit to, to not stop holding on to them. The second one is a commitment to relentless prayers and appeals to God's mercy. Guys, God loves when we ask for him to show mercy. God chooses mercy over judgment. It's what he loves to choose. The first characteristic he chose to describe himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. He could have chosen any word in the whole, whole language to choose to describe himself to Moses as. What did he choose? He said, I am the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful, merciful, full of mercy. So he loves when we appeal to him on that basis for the people in our lives who need his mercy. I am the Lord God, merciful, in the Old Testament, curses say that they go to the third or fourth generations. But mercy, the covenant of mercy goes to the thousandth generation. So if you do the quick math, he's like 250 or to 333 times more likely to choose mercy for your family members than judgment. If you do a generational math there. He really wants to answer your appeals for mercy. Habakkuk 3.2 says this. It says, Lord, we have heard of your fame. We stand in all of your deeds, O Lord. Would you renew them in our day and in our time make known? Would you, in wrath, God, remember mercy? So that four words you can pray over your family members. In wrath, would you remember mercy for them? So raise your hand if you have people in your life that you want to commit to not stop giving up on. Go ahead and raise your hand if you want to make that commitment. Even people in your workplace or people who don't know the Lord. Amazing. You're raising your hand and you're basically saying, I'm not going to let you go, God, until you bless them with mercy. Say, I'm not going to let you go as long as I have breath and they have breath. I'm going to keep holding on. And even after they have breath, I'm going to keep holding on for as long as you, you want me to. Resurrections are real. 
So I want you to go ahead and text mercy to my number there, just so I can pray for you as the Lord leads me. I want to pray for your name that you would not stop holding on to these family members. I want to pray for you that you would follow through this commitment. It's 512-538-4099. Just text mercy. I'm not going to message you or how to. I just want to know your name so I can pray and say, God, would you give them the grace to continue to hold on appeal to you for your mercy. And the third and final action step is super practical. It's to reach out to people with this what's after booklet that's right here on the altar in front of us. There's 23 of them up here, and when we play the worship song, feel free to come up and grab one. Seven, I think there's like 60 or 70 little pages in here. It's a quick read. Read it. Here's a commitment. Read it and then pray and ask God who to give it to. This little booklet is full of stories just like mine. And then commit to having a, a conversation, an honest conversation with whoever God puts on your heart to give that to. Just talk to him about it. Let the Lord lead the conversation. You can't miss when you're trying. <laughs> when you have love and you care, you can't miss. So I just want to invite you just to come up and grab a book in the worship song and then text that same number, 512-538-4099. Just text the word book. So mercy and book, if you want to make that commitment. There's 23 of them, so they might sell out. We're not charging anything. The eternal rewards are far greater than whatever, the $3 it costs each book. <laughs> just come and grab them. Uh, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God puts the right person on your heart and that there would be grace to follow through by giving them that and then having that honest conversation with them. All right, worship team. Thank you all.